Welcome to CCF. Some names for you. Cool Aid. Is he here? No. Ellie? Shawkins. Tay Tuck. Joe Belzer. Sarah Jensen. Amara. Polly. Polly. Sweaty. Stephanie. Noah. Allie Holloway. Lydia Richard. Lydia Donaldson. Kylie Ostermeyer. Ostermeyer? Lindberger now. I don't even have to worry about it. Wendell, Jake Wendell, Brian Walker, Kelsey Mitchell, Ivan. Whitehouse, Rachel, JJ, Seth Smith, Elise, Carson, who happens to be here. Ruprecht, Squids the Bear, DeWitt. Uh, the Watsons, Olivia and Devin, Mandy, Michael Anderson, Mandy. Robin, oh, Oloranti, oh, yeah. <laughs> Jessica Hope Tiller, Alex Gerke, Amy Engelbrecht, Dane Bossert, Caleb, Caleb Sackett, and Spencer Chipley. Oh, uh, by my count, that's 37, well, 38 if you count the Watsons as two separate people, uh, 38 <laughs> souls who have given testimonies over the past three years. Uh, and... I just want to say that I am so freaking proud. I, I feel so very proud of like all of you who share and the depth, the insight, the wisdom, like the creativity that you share with it freaking blows me away every time. And it's not just a bunch of Christianese like this and that. It's like real deep, Godward, transformative kind of stuff that we are really lucky to have so much of. Uh, and anyway, so thank you to you all who have shared with us for the past three years. Um, you are our letters of recommendation to steal a line from Paul. If there is anything uh, worth saying about this ministry, it can be said all there. Just if, if, is this ministry worth being here? Is it worth our time? Listen to any one of them or listen to all of them together, and I dare you to say otherwise. So thank you so much. Okay. <clears throat> Testimony. Take read. Or an attempt at responsibility to moments of sheer existential surprise. Yes, I'm being very intentionally wordy here. Or a kind of sustained awareness of the surfeit of being over the beings it sustains, I hope or at the border of some tremendous and beautiful discovery, or not knowing that everything I know exists in an irreducibly gratuitous way. And thanks, DBH, David Bentley Hart, for all of the titles. I stole them. Those are, all those lines are from a book that I'm reading. He's pretty wordy. <sighs> Except for the testimony part. That's mine. You are here entering back into a series on Philippians that we started at the beginning of the semester that has been mixed in with a few testimonies, interrupted by an amazing spring break trip. Uh, now we're going to continue on with it a little bit. So I have the first half of chapter three here. So would you please stand? And I'm going to read these 11 verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we 
are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, please sit down. Just a little bit to highlight there that we're going to be focusing on. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, from Philippians and from Acts 1, 8, sorry, 8, 1, and Saul approved of his execution. Dear Trimonites, grace and peace to you from God our Father. This is me, by the way. In 2002, I was 18. You were born. I was 18. That's Leanne, also 18, 2002. What? Raise your hand if you were not born when this picture was taken. It was taken in May of 02. Yeah. Hey, it's all good. I'm still cool with the kids. I'm hip. Sup, dog? <laughs> Dude, what's up? That's me. That's the me. That's the me that I'm going to be talking about uh, this evening. Grace and peace. Look at the hair. Look, I had hair, and not I didn't have this going on. Let's try this again. She looks exactly the same. I know. It's amazing. I won the lottery, folks. Grace and peace to you, Trumanites, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Go dogs. Listen. I know of your reputation for excellence, for study, for achievement. You, of course, have much reason for much have reason for much confidence in this, though I myself have some reason for it also. I was one of you, after all, from 2003 to 2007. Even if I graduated merely cum laude and surely would be outpaced academically by many in this room. But if anyone thinks he has cause for confidence in the matter of being Christian at college, I promise I have more. I was the golden boy from a thousand plus member charismatic church in Kansas City of the people of the spirit of the tribe of non-denomination, a Christian of Christians living in a perpetual Pentecost. As to the law, the sole student in my high school youth group of 200 to memorize verbatim all of Exodus 20 and get $200 from my youth pastor, half of which I then immediately put back in the offering plate. As to, please don't clap for me. 
as to zeal at every prayer meeting, before and after service, eyes tight shut, pacing or kneeling, praying fervently in tongues, both heavenly and human, stirring the spirit of God, present at every gathering, event, retreat, production. As to righteousness under spiritual disciplines, blameless. My parents put a TV in my room during my junior year of high school, but in my unflagging devotion to God, I taped a big sign over the screen inscribed with Proverbs 24, those too lazy to plow in the right season will have no food at the harvest. (laughs) (laughs) Laughing is the appropriate response. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And I was advancing in Christianity beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my pastors. From my youth, Sunday school teachers and leaders continually talked about how wise Reed Dent was for his age, how insightful his answers were. I was chosen above all of my peers in my rather large youth group to be the speaker at the graduation banquet. After high school, I went to a worship-focused school of ministry in Dallas, Texas, where I played weekly in this like top-tier band of excellent musicians, one of whom you've probably heard of. Worship, preaching, Bible, prayer warrior, I was a Christian made for ministry, Saul and me golden boys. Now, I don't claim to be as great as Saul. (laughs) And what qualified someone as A-plus in Saul's Jewish world, Torah, obedience, and in my Pentecostal world, spirit, gifts, they were certainly different criteria, but in our own respects, we each played our game quite well, and somewhere along the way, I think we each misplaced something really valuable. I left the Texas Ministry School. I arrived at Truman and CCF in 2003. I was attracted to CCF because, like my old church, it was where a lot of people went. Also, my girlfriend went there. Which meant it was where a lot of people could be blessed by my ministerial talent. Didn't take long, though, to notice that Things here didn't have quite the same flair and fervor as my old church or the ministry school. At CCF, they sang hymns sometimes instead of just a constant flow of Christian hits. That's what we did in our Pentecostal church, baby. There were no intense prayer meetings. Actually, now we do morning prayer every day, but back then there was none of that. And there were no intense prayer meetings, definitely, where you could really work up a sweat There were no flamboyant outreach events, which meant I had no way to work out my gifts. So after being on campus for all of about six seconds, I devised a master plan to make CCF a more relevant, soul-saving, spirit-filled, successful campus ministry. In other words, I devised a plan to build myself a stage. Let's serve dinner to all of campus every Sunday night and preach them the gospel while they eat. I can give the message. Let's do big outreach events on the quad monthly with a huge one at the stadium once a year. I'll play the music. Let's have a twice-weekly 
two-hour prayer meeting with background music. You can't sit down. I can lead in the spirit. All of this as a first half of first semester freshman. Apologies to your dad, Esther, because man, I just really thought he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> Before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. And when Saul encountered a Christianity that he perceived as either unworthy of or a threat to his own faith like I did, despite all of his devotion to God and to Torah, his reaction was absolutely merciless. He dragged people from their homes. He threw them into prisons. And in one of the most Godfather-like scenes in all of the scriptures, as Stephen is being stoned for his testimony in Acts 7, Saul is standing there presiding over. They're brutally murdering this guy in the street, and Saul is standing there. And some of the violent mob in the middle of this come over to Saul on the sidelines, bowing down in tribute, laying their garments at his feet, kissing his ring, I imagine, even as Stephen's cries for mercy for his killers can be heard in the background. And Saul, top of his class, role model of the faith, Saul, just stands there, Stephen's blood running on the ground between his feet, unmoved, arms crossed, the story ending with this line. And Saul approved of his execution. I wasn't executing anybody, for the record, but I became destructive in my own way. I was judgmental and condescending when people suggested careful consideration and slowness to act, and God forbid, humility. I wondered why they weren't passionate about God. When people didn't know C.S. Lewis's apologetic argument from morality, I questioned if they truly believed, like I did. I became critical, condescending, arrogant, internally, of course, because to express that out loud would be very unchristian. On the outside, I was endearing and charismatic, and I took every opportunity to let people know what I knew and what I could do, all the while inwardly seeing pretty much everyone as a means to either validating or magnifying my golden boy status. But here at CCF, uh, it was quite different from my church back, here, back home. Here, my self-righteous Christian talent was challenged rather than indulged. Leadership applications went out my freshman year. One night, I was with my freshman accountability group, led by Joe Belzer, the amazing head minister at CCF. See, there was another star on my pedigree chart because the head guy chose me for his accountability group. We're sitting around out at the Belzer farm, around a bonfire discussing our future roles at CCF, what we might do. And I told everyone that, of course, I had plans. I was going to be an intern, maybe even a staff member if they'd let me as soon as possible. Uh, and that made sense because I could do pretty much anything spiritual that was needed, lead worship, I can lead the prayer ministry, I can preach, I can do all of that. And to my great surprise, instead of a hearty affirmation of my gifts, things got quiet around that campfire. And the group, all like unanimously, it's almost like they had talked about it ahead of time, but they didn't need to really. They all agreed that I shouldn't be given any leadership position whatsoever. I remember they said, it just seems like you need this too much. Even Joe agreed 
And since he was the head guy, that meant I was definitely not going to become a leader that time. <laughs> Needless to say, I was devastated. And not only that, I was really incredibly angry. Like, how dare they? How dare they not want me? How dare they think that they could be better suited for leadership and ministry than me? And I became harder to keep my ego and my judgment like neatly inside. And my superiority, which really was just thinly veiled insecurity and self-loathing, it started to manifest in just critical words and attitudes. I despised myself, honestly, and then also those who wouldn't uphold this illusion of me that I fought so desperately to maintain. Instead, they brought it into the light and I could not handle that. I was so attached to these things that I had made for myself, the talents, the skills, the devotion, the Christian whatever, that to take them away from me or even just to diminish them, it posed like a threat to my existence. Who was I, after all, if the things that I was best at were taken from me? Whatever it may be for you, because I'm sure not all of you care about being a ministry superstar in the way that I did, but when you feel the threat of it being stripped or kept from you, whatever that thing is, and then you can't conceive of any of you being left, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, what if you had none of your Bible knowledge? Or what if your resume was blank? This, I suspect, uh, is something close to what it must mean for something to be your righteousness. How does that happen, I wonder? Like, how does someone with such talent, such understanding, such devotion to the God of unending love, of whom the... Torah and the Christian scriptures speak, how does someone with devotion to that and understanding of that come to live so destructively and from such emptiness, such malice? Like, how do we go from advancing in the way of the faith beyond our peers to then approving of their executions? How do we come to treasure our little trinkets so much? How do we get fooled into thinking that those things are more important than the one who gave them to us? Here's a quote. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, David Foster Wallace, the author, not like explicitly a Christian person, but you know, you get the point of what he's saying, go with it. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Paul Tillich would have called this trying to make something ultimate that is not actually ultimate. We can call it misplacing our righteousness. Another word for this is idolatry. And the really insidious 
thing about idols, if you listen closely to what DFW is saying, it's that they diminish us precisely to the degree that we worship them. They take from us precisely the things that we most hope to get from them. Idols always crumble under the weight of the devotion we give them and in the most darkly ironic ways. Like DFW said, and more, like worship relationships, and you will always feel isolated and alone, even when those around you are offering you intimacy. Worship achievement, and you will always feel like you're failing, like you're not doing enough. The more I worshiped my Christianity, the further I drifted from Christ. The more insecure and unassured I felt, the more I looked down on everyone else who was happily deploying their gifts in service of him. So I think what happened was that both Saul and I came to worship the wrong God. We came to trust the wrong story, as Marty would say. For Saul, righteousness through the law. For me, righteousness through Christianity. And note, Christ and Christianity are very different things. For you, righteousness through what? What carries the allure and promise of security, strength, provision, identity for you? How do we come out of that place of misplaced righteousness? Having gone from advancing in the faith to approving of executions, How do we go from approving of executions to becoming holy fools for Christ like Saul did? How do we come, like Paul, to consider that all of our pedigrees and degrees and talents and knowledge and achievements and badges amount to a pile of crap? Maybe it helps to change our verb from an active one from an active one to a passive one. So not how do I come out but rather, how am I brought out of this? Because maybe I don't dig myself out of this one. Paul in Galatians writes, When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul is talking about, here he's talking about when he, Saul, was stopped dead in his tracks by a light. You guys know this story? Are you familiar with it? on the way to Damascus, and a voice with that light. And what came up living on the other side became Paul. You can read about this in Acts 9. And I wonder a lot, what happened in that light? Like if we stop and we pause and we like are on that dusty road and it's really freaking hot outside, and we're smelling with our nose, and we're tasting with our mouth, and we're feeling with our skin, and we're there in the flesh, what happened? What was it like in that light? The voice said, why are you persecuting me? But sometimes I wonder, did it say anything else? What would it say to you? How long did Saul lay there, stunned? Sometimes God is pleased to reveal his son to us like this, like suddenly just boom, turning on a spotlight. Other times, though, 
It seems like God is pleased to reveal his son in the way that candles are lit, one by one, slowly filling up a dark room with light. For me, the road to Damascus, it was, it was, it was more like the candles. It began with that accountability group confrontation, and then God continued to light up candles as people at CCF steadily pointed out over and over for several years, no, that's not your righteousness, not your Christian things, not your ministry experience, not what your girlfriend thinks of you. You aren't necessary like you think you are. Please stop being stupid. My time as a student here uh, was a sort of judgment, I think. God passing judgment on all of the false things that I had set up as my righteousness in my time before I got here. They were exposed for what they were. That was brought up to me, and then I had to make a choice about whether or not I was going to continue to cling to them. Maybe you find yourself at a similar crossroads. So in a way, the revealing of the sun can happen immediately, it can happen gradually, it can be a judgment, but also it can be a grace. And actually, I believe it's both. I believe judgment and grace, they're like fraternal twins, or they're like two sides of the same coin. They're a part of the same experience. And and the grace word, while I'm having that torn down in judgment, is also that no matter uh, how great our thing may be, or how great we are at it, or whatever is being taken from us, we are completely held and accepted by the love of God in Christ simply and only because it is graciously given to us. Full stop. For me, I found this in people who watched me fall apart. And when those idols and my righteousness in them crumbled, when I saw like Scarlet and Gone with the Wind, have you seen this movie? That I loved something that didn't exist. They saw me just wither in anxiety and self-loathing in this newly realized emptiness because I didn't know who I was anymore if I didn't have that as the foundation of me. What they saw was not pretty, okay? It was kind of pathetic and embarrassing and shameful because sometimes the unvarnished truth about us is like that. And yet they kept coming alongside me anyway. They kept saying, you are wanted You are loved by us and by God, no matter what. So stop being stupid, please. And as I learned to trust in the love of God that was being shown to me by those people, and I can name their names and you won't know who they are, but they're real people who really sat in these seats 20 years ago, going on 20 years ago, just like you have real people sitting in these seats now in this continuous chain from them to you all through the generations. It's an amazingly beautiful thing. And as I learned to trust the love of God through what he was doing here, I started to laugh. Like, look at how silly it is. All the things that I named in the beginning, the memorization, the banquet speaking, the worship leading, the spiritual discipline, all the books I've read and the authors and the ideas going, like all of that is so silly. Even now, I'm a CCF staff person. I'm a co-host on the Bayma podcast. All of that is so silly. 
Paul's way of saying it in Philippians 3 is, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything. All of that silliness is loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In that spotlight, in that candlelit room, in that judgment, and in that grace. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. You can take it. And I count them as rubbish, as crap, as excrement, in order that I can gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or any of my Christian stuff, but it comes through faith in Christ, the faithfulness of Christ. How could I have seriously expected that stuff to be the foundation of my righteousness? And yet, at the time, I mean, it felt so heavy, so significant, so indispensable to me. Like, don't take it from me because you're threatening who I am. I don't know who I am without that. And so it, so it goes. We all go through it. Whatever your heavy, significant, indispensable thing is, hear me lovingly say now to you, please stop being stupid. I'm glad you are great at whatever you care about so much. And I'm glad that you're so smart and that you're so beautiful and that you're so charismatic and that stuff does not matter like you think it does. When it comes to being the foundation for your place with God, what? It's like we're, it's like we're the people in the garden. You ever, you, ever, you ever think about this? The snake comes to the woman. He says, yeah, if you eat that, you're going to be like God. She's already like God. She was already told, or we were already told, that when the people were created, they were made in the image of God. He's not offering her anything she doesn't already possess. So, so to think that this stuff can like somehow solidify your place with God or your value as a person, whatever it is, it's, it's, it's rubbish. And I get it, and I love you, and it's rubbish. And hear me, whatever it is, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your intellect, your Bible knowledge, your social justice causes, whatever it is, you are actually making it less than what it's supposed to be by trying to make it more than what it can be. The only thing that can possibly bear the weight of you and your value is the one who created you in your beginning and who will be there at your end like we talked about a couple weeks ago on Ash Wednesday. All the other stuff, it passes away. Being found in Christ, like Paul talks about, that's all that can matter, which is good news for all of you, because at least at this moment, I'm telling you, he's not hiding from you. He is standing right here, talking to you, saying that his grace has already reached down into the depths to lift you up, or if you are high on yourself, it has already reached up to the heights to cut you down. That's what I'm telling you. Christ is your righteousness. What you need to do is await this grace with confidence and acknowledge it with gratitude. And what will happen is this. You'll start to get the order right. 
And you'll start letting all of those perfectly fine things, like being a worship leader and being a preacher and putting signs up on your TV screens and all of that, all of that will start to, it will go the right direction. It will flow from what is given to you in Christ rather than, rather than you hitching yourself to those things like a dog sled and expecting you, them to like drive you to it. The more keenly observant among you may have noticed that I've said all of this as part of a sermon I am preaching as a professional minister. I became the thing, everybody. Isn't that bad? Wasn't that what you were supposed to have given up because isn't your righteousness in this now? When Paul writes that he counts all of his former life in Judaism as rubbish and no longer has a righteousness that comes from the law, that doesn't mean that he's no longer Jewish and no longer observes the law. He means that it's just now put in its proper place. The law was never meant by God to ultimately be righteousness for any Jew. That's not what he meant for it. That idea came into people's heads when sin and pride crept in and manipulated things. The problem for Saul and for me was perception, attitude, not the law itself, not Christianity itself. The law and all of that stuff that I had all along that was meant simply to be a way for us to love the God that I already knew loved me. And it was meant to be the thing that set him and me apart just as a priest in the world, as a one who might use it to point to God, that the world might somehow see what God is like through the law, through that stuff, through what God was asking of me. So when Saul became Paul and when I became me, he didn't stop being Jewish or observing the law. I didn't stop doing spiritual disciplines and preaching and all that. I just learned and he learned that's not the foundation. They're the overflow of what I had freely received by God's grace. And I stopped doing them in order to be justified, and I started doing them in order to partner with God and what he was trying to do in the world. So it can be with you. It can be that way with you and your things. The good things that you love, that you want, they're not meant to be erased in Christ. They're meant to be transformed into something more. It's this weird, you try to make it more and it becomes less. You're okay with it being less and it can somehow become more. When we do it, not from a place of emptiness, not from a place of scarcity. Apprentices, are you listening? I've said this to you semester after semester. Not from a place where your hands are out, you're walking around to everybody saying, please tell me that I'm enough. Look at the cool thing I can do. I can preach a sermon, tell me I'm enough. I can quote you a Bible verse. Tell me I'm enough. I read N.T. Wright. Tell me I'm enough. I got a 10-point whatever in the 100 meter. Tell me I'm enough. I made friends with all these other people that I didn't know. Tell me I'm enough. When it doesn't come from there, but when it can come from a place of already being secure, already being full, already abundant provision, the prayer that we do, apprentices, the beloved, already from a place of belovedness, then, then we might just have some tools that can build the kingdom of God and change the world. And so now, <laughs> now may we see how silly we can be. 
And may we stop being silly. And may we have eyes to see that that which we have chosen is given us. And that which we have rejected is granted us. And may we wrestle to remember that righteousness is given to us in Christ. And may we have faith to get over ourselves and live that way. Let's pray. Here we are, Lord, little claws raking life back and forth, scrounging, scrambling, pleading for something that you are already holding out to us. We try to make it in our own way, and we try to prove that it's us, and we're scared, and we're anxious, and... Uh, and there you are, in our beginning, making us in your image, at our end, arms open, waiting for us to, like the prodigal son, realize that we've really wasted a lot, and it's not as good eating out of a trough, and that we can just come back. You're waiting for us to realize that and come back. That our righteousness might be found not to be something of our own that we made but it's something that is given to us in Christ. Thank you, God. Thank you that you love us enough to shine the light of judgment, shine the light of grace. Help us walk in that light. Amen.